Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're heading into the frozen wastes in search of Ithaqua, the Wind Walker. Before we get into all that chilly stuff, however, what's going on? So earlier this month, we put out our first newsletter. And if you'd like to sign up, please visit blasphemoustomes.com slash newsletter. And as ever, we'll put a link in the show notes to let you know where to find that. I see that Scott's been foregoing the need for sleep recently. Welcome to my world. (laughs) You've been making some appearances on other parts of the internet, I see. Well, I've done a couple of guest spots or interviews recently on other podcasts. So a few weeks back, I spoke to Glenn McDorman of the Elder Sign podcast, the Elder Sign podcast is a weird fiction podcast. People, normally the two hosts, but occasionally guests, come on and talk about some of their favourite weird fiction stories and break them down and talk about why they're their favourite. I had a good long think about the story that I was going to discuss there. I ended up choosing The Werewolf and the Vampire by R. Chetwynd Hayes, simply because Chetwynd Hayes was one of my favourite writers when I was young, and you don't really hear much about him anymore. He's a forgotten figure in horror, despite the fact that he won a British Fantasy Award, World Fantasy Award. Yeah, people don't remember him now, so I went on there and gave what I hope was a passionate case for why he should be remembered. With any luck, that should be out around the same time as this episode drops. I'll put a link in the show notes if possible. If not, check your podcast feed for the Elder Science podcast, and it should be there eventually. And also I had a chat with Andy Goodman of Grizzly Peaks Radio about creating atmosphere in horror gaming. He's got a new project which he wants to try to kick off where he wants to try to do a horror actual play that is actually scary because most horror APs don't really aim for that. He wants to try to use some of the techniques from audio dramas to create something a bit more chilling than the average AP. And so we had a fairly long chat about how you might do it and whether such a thing is even possible in the first place. Mm. Interesting stuff. I can remember some... uh very creepy audio dramas. That's the point he was making. He was talking particularly about things like the Magnus archives and how creepy he found those. But obviously, APs being a very different beast don't really have the same effect. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting experiment. I don't know whether it's going to be successful, but I'm looking forward to being part of it. And also, I believe you've been doing some interviews for our show, Scott. I've done a few special episodes recently, which you'll be able to find in your feed, or one's going to be coming out the week after this episode. But I interviewed Adrian Tchaikovsky primarily about his science fiction, but also about Lovecraftian horror, cosmic horror, how that feeds into science fiction, and how he creates believable, compelling non-human characters in his stories, and how we might be able to steal all that stuff for our games. It helps that he's a gamer, so he brought a lot of insights about that into the discussion. And then I've interviewed Seth Skorkowski and John Hook about their new Modern Mythos podcast. We were supposed to talk for an hour. John got a bit held up, uh, so I spoke to Seth for a while first, and we ended up speaking, I think, for about four hours. So by the time I cut it all down, there's going to be, I don't know, two and a half, three hours of chat there split over a couple of episodes. Great stuff. As we're rapidly approaching the end of June, issue 7 of our Blasphemous Tome fanzine is nearing the horizon. So this is the fanzine that we create for all our Patreon backers. Yeah, so this is going to be our final call-out. So if you want to back us on Patreon, you'll get a PDF of the Blasphemous Tome. If you back us at $3 or more, you'll get a voucher for a print-on-demand copy. And everyone who backs us on $5 and above, you'll get a signed print copy delivered straight to your door. By Scott Dorwood on his bicycle. <laughs> that might might not be true. 
I'm going to summon something to send it to you instead. I outsource these things. That's what Bayaki are for. And you will be amazed when you see this cover by John Sumrow. Gosh, yes. Because it's a wraparound cover. It's like a centrefold, but it's on the outside. It's a centrefold of Brown Jenkin. <laughs> I know. Yes, our entity of the month. The rat with the human face. Yeah, the picture is absolutely bloody amazing i'm a big fan of john's work anyway but this one is creepy it's just fantastic john has this habit and i told him this the other evening but i'm going to repeat it now of of sending through a bit of art because he, he he updates us with uh, sketches he sends through a bit of art and i think that's that's good and then he sends it through and i think oh that's finished that's that's awesome look at that that's great that thing he's left the, some space on the back cover for you know writing or whatever and I think, that's that's really good but then I don't realise it's not finished. And then he sends through another version with all this more stuff on the back that you know, I never even dreamed of. It's, uh, yeah, totally awesome. Well, you didn't dream of it because you aren't in the witch house, Paul. Ah, that'd be it. I'll put details in the show notes about how precisely you can get the tome and give you a little reminder there about who gets what at which level. And now on to our main topic, Mythos Deities, Ithaqua. This is another one of our regular looks at the deities of the Cthulhu Mythos. This time, we're turning to August Derlith and his creation, Ithaqua, the Windwalker, the Deathwalker. Where did Ithaqua come from? What inspired him? What legends and other works of weird fiction did Derlith draw upon? How has he been used in other fiction and gaming? And how might we use him in our own games? So, where did Ithaqua come from, apart from a place where I really want to be right now? What, Leng? Well, somewhere colder than here. So, while he is sometimes incorrectly credited as a Lovecraft creation, Ithaqua was the sole creation of August Derleth, although he certainly name-checks and references a whole load of people that inspired him in his first stories. Lovecraft never mentioned the deity in any of his fiction. What's the date of the first mention? 1933, January 1933, in Strange Tales of Mystery and Terror. Der the story, The Thing That Walked on the Wind. So that doesn't give Lovecraft many years to reference it anyway, does it? Because he dies no. in 37, so... Mm-hmm. Well, and also... I don't know enough about the relationship between Derlith and Lovecraft. I get the impression from the bits of the correspondence that I've read that... I don't know, this may be unkind, but Lovecraft tolerated Derlith. I mean, he encouraged him, but at the same time, Derlith's enthusiasm and his wish to rewrite the mythos and remake things in his own image and add all these additional elements that Lovecraft hadn't envisaged. I get the impression, yeah, Lovecraft didn't discourage him, but sort of sat there patiently like you might when there's a small yappy dog running around the room. Probably shitting all over the carpet. That's interesting, then, because there'd been that four-year gap, because Derleth does name-check Lovecraft in the story. Mm. So I'd be interested to know if there was any correspondence between them after that, even if it was just on that point alone. The main name-checking goes on in one of his later Athaqua stories, Beyond the Threshold, which... Apart from being a pretty shitty story on all counts, I mean, it's, it's really not very good. It's one of the first, well, I mean, all of these are amongst the first mythos stories or horror stories to actually bring Lovecraft in effectively as a character or bring his stories in as things that exist within the universe that these stories exist in. It's something that I thought had actually originated with Robert Block and his book Strange Eons. But no, Derlith was there first, and I'd forgotten that. In the Ithaqua cycle, Robert M. Price does make the, I think, rather unkind suggestion, but possibly accurate, that certainly in Beyond the Threshold, that the reason Derlith did it, or mentioned particularly, what was it, The Outsider and Others, the first book of Lovecraft to be published, was that he was trying to drum up business for Arkham House. (laughs) Plugging his own book in a way, yeah. Ah. I can see that. (laughs) I listened to a reading of beyond the threshold i think it was quite indicative that i sat there and think christ this thing goes on for a little more than an hour it better be good no let's let's increase the speed to 1.25 no, <laughs> and 1.5 by the end i was listening on twice the speed just to get through the thing it was dull as ditch water well it's also really weird in that it 
primarily out of all Lovecraft's works, draws upon the shadow of Rinsmith, which mm. just seems like a weird fit. You're mm. writing about this deity that lives in the winds and frozen wastes and comes down and snatches people mm. up, and you're also writing about it from the point of view of deep ones. Price does mention again in his introductory notes on The Thing That Walked on the Wind that it seemed like Durleth was like a kid in a sweet shop, drawing mm. from as many different Lovecraftian things as he could, and that some of them really didn't mesh together. Like his description for Ithaca came down to it had webbed feet. Well, I can understand that for a deep one, but why, why the mm. hell Ithaca? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's weird. In the Ithaca Cyclone, Price picks three stories. But that one we just mentioned, The Thing That Walked on the Wind, one which was published originally as Ithaca, but he publishes as The Snow Thing, which I believe was Durless' original title for it, and Beyond the Threshold. And so these three, I guess, form the cornerstone of this, but I certainly found references as well in uh, The Mask of Cthulhu. I think that is where Derleth really got into the elemental association. So this is one thing that Derleth brought to the mythos, this whole idea of these mythos deities being elemental forces. It's like he created Ithaqua to be his his wind elemental or his air elemental, the same way as he created Cthulhu to plug the hole left by fire. In that book, he makes reference, Cthulhu, leader of the elemental water powers, Haster Ithakwa Loigor, who led the forces of air, Yogg-Sothoth and Sothogyua of Earth. But then later in the same book, he also describes Haster as the elemental of interplanetary spaces, and then introduces Cthulhu, so fuck knows. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, because you talk about him plugging a hole, but it's not like there were three clear <laughs> elemental deities and he yeah. just needed a fourth. It's yeah. like, there aren't really any. I can imagine one of those children's toys with the round hole, the square hole, and he's just got like a load of star-shaped pegs and he's just trying to bash them in to these. And there is no star-shaped hole, you know? It's like, I don't know, it's bizarre. He decided on picking the star because that was his version of the Elder Sign as well. So... <laughs> So yes. going down that, that elementals route, I mean, what is the deal with that? I mean, how is Yogg-Sothoth an Earth-based one? Is that what you said? I mean, how does that work? That's not what I said. That's what Durlis said. I just repeated it. Please don't tar me with the same brush there. Ooh. I can kind of see the the thinking of how you might get from Cthulhu to a water deity, even though he is, like, trapped beneath the ocean. He has got, like, tentacles and a bit octopus-like and, and everything. So you can kind of see that connection... But beyond that, it seems very weak, and I'm not really sure the point in doing it. But I guess if you're just somebody with a very systematic mind who likes to have everything kind of categorised very clearly, I guess the only kind of, yeah, you know, that he wanted a structure on it, that he didn't like it being structureless. So I guess that, that kind of makes sense. The only thing I can think of that how you could even remotely associate Yogg-Sothoth with Earth or like as an Earth elemental is that he's made up of big globes. The Earth's a globe. <laughs> it's the same shape. That's it. I guess. He's not in the Dunwich Horror. He's not described that way. I think that's something, again, Durlith himself brought in later. The closest association I can see with Earth is in the Dunwich Horror. The Earth, you know, our, our planet, is basically his original home. He's trying to take us back to where the planet belongs. And so I guess there's that relationship. But Durlith... It wasn't just this elemental association, but he also brought in the the whole elder gods having cast down the great old ones and imprisoned them, and this whole war of good against evil, basically reinventing Milton in the image of Lovecraft or vice versa. I think to this day, a lot of what we see in the Cthulhu mythos there, these elements are far more dirty than they are Lovecraft. So picking up on that air elemental idea, Durleth looks around for connections and he turns to Algernon Blackwood's novella from 1910 titled The Wendigo for inspiration. It's very clear with Lovecraft that some of his visions are strengthened by the fact that he calls upon 
names from from history so you know he refers to Dagon he refers to Nodens and these were things that were in other books or myths that kind of lend credence to his myths don't they so I think Derleth is probably quite wise to hark back to this story by Blackwood and he name checks Blackwood in the thing that walked on the wind and later in the mask of Cthulhu and described the Wendigo as the cousin of Ithaqua interesting yeah i find it amazing that he found any inspiration from that story because now that i've been (laughs) exposed to two blackwood stories that man is on my no pun intended blacklist that i don't want to read anything by him ever again it's so drawn out long dull boring as shit and it oh it frustrated me that i fell asleep three times trying to listen to the fucking audiobook of that story well at least you don't have any trouble getting to sleep man What else can we say? I don't know. I enjoyed it. I, I really like that yeah. story. I'll probably enjoy that more than The Willows, I think. I can sort of see it's probably not as... It doesn't stand as high in sort of literary achievement, perhaps, as The Willows. But I think as a story, you know, the elements in The Wendigo, I think, yeah, just some really good scenes. And, yeah. uh My feet, my feet, my <laughs> burning feet. Yeah, all that craziness. I love that. But because of Derleth drawing upon this story and name-checking it... Then almost immediately, there is this conflation of Ithaqua and the Wendigo. One thing I think we'll need to get into later in the episode is how accurate or inaccurate this is and how people (laughs) developing games these days have tried to deal with some of that legacy because it is a little problematic. Derleth may have been inspired by The Thing from Outside, a 1923 story by George Allen England, also set in the Canadian wilderness. This is more of a cosmic horror tale than the Wendigo, with the protagonists convinced they have encountered a deadly entity from beyond our reality. Yeah, this is another one of the stories in the Ithaqua cycle, and I did kind of like this one. It's a very weird story for the time. It's one of these stories that feels more Lovecraftian than Lovecraft does at times. It's got this entity that is unimaginable, indescribable from beyond space and time that just sort of leaves these traces and drives people to madness. And yeah, it's really quite odd. In Durleth's tales, Ithaqua, also known as the Windwalker and the Deathwalker, is a monstrous humanoid entity, or almost like a parody of a humanoid entity, that dwells in the winds coming down to Earth to snatch up hapless humans and drag them up to the skies. Yeah, which generally doesn't work out very well for them. Now, while Ithaqua seems to favour cold climates, particularly Canada and the northern United States, Durleth places his influences all over the world in his stories. Given that Ithaqua is an entity of cold as much as the wind, he does seem more at home in the frozen north, however. It seems that Ithaqua may have originated in Leng, wherever Leng is. Yeah. <laughs> Leng, is, Leng is a state of mind. Which day of the week is it determines its location. Yeah. Lem is where the sacrificed heart is. So in these early tales, Durdith describes a, a couple of different cults of Ithaqua. One of them, a town called Stillwater, is basically this community in the thing that walked in the wind that offers up its residents, and I can't remember whether they offered up any outsiders, but certainly their own residents, as sacrifices to Ithaqua. And then in The Snow Thing, You've got these depictions of native people in Alaska going out to these stone circles in the woods, having these huge bonfires and then burning human offerings out there. When Ithaqua himself appears in the stories, he's described in terms of natural phenomena. I thought that the cloud which had obscured the sky looked curiously like the outline of a great man, where the top of the cloud must have been, where the top of the head of the thing that should have been, There were two gleaming stars, visible despite the shadow. Two gleaming stars burning bright like eyes. And this is something we see quite a bit in uh, depictions and descriptions of Ithaqua. These these clouds or a a storm or whatever and two red eyes glowing out, which is uh, a pretty cool image. 
a lot of the artwork that I've seen in a lot of the Chaosium or even the licensee publications always has that kind of long drawn like skeletal body, long gaping mouth. But as we'll mention on uh, a bit later, there's one cover in particular which does feature that kind of starry, almost wisp of the wind kind of appearance. And that's on the front cover of Cold Warning. Ah. And as he mentioned, this is a long drawn out figure. When he walks, when he comes down to air, he does leave these monstrous footprints, which, as he pointed out, Matt, are webbed for some fucking reason, that are like a half mile apart, the individual footsteps. So, yeah, he's got a fair stride. Maybe he's just got some of those like big snowshoes on. Oh, yeah. Right. So he doesn't like sink into the snow. Maybe it's not webbing at all. I'm suddenly thinking of those spiders that migrate or move around by creating these parachutes of silk, this webbing. And I'm just wondering whether this is like something similar between his toes, that here he's turning his feet into wingsuits or something like that, just by putting webbing between his toes and drifting along the winds. I mean, it makes as much sense as anything else in this story. Parachuting spiders, if I didn't have enough nightmare fuel already. (laughs) And I can imagine Scott probably does have spiders between his toes. <laughs> hmm. Keeps them warm and safe. Well, exactly. So the victims of Ithaqua in these stories are snatched up into the skies. Some are found later, either dead or dying or having plummeted from a great height. You know, sometimes just crashed down through a tree in a, in a half, like a block of ice. And sometimes they kind of end up, they appear in their kind of clutching something and that took me back to some of the Migo legends that we saw in um whisper in darkness is it derleth that refers to to the himalayas or am i thinking of lumley i can't remember one of them i think does. it's in whisper in darkness that it mentions the story of the abominable snowman and the yeti and so on no no with Ithaqua, i thought there was some reference of uh one of those things. oh yeah the, to the, the again using the abominable snowman i think mm. i think it's the thing that walked on the wind In the snow thing, there is another version of this where victims are found frozen in a suspended state, wrapped in snow that has been spun like gauze. You know, that sounds really appealing right now. One dying victim babbles. Oh, soft, lovely snow. Ithakwa, take thou my body. Let the snow god carry me. But the god of the great white silence, take me to the foot of that great... (laughs) Hasta, hasta... Adoramus Tay, Adoramus Tay, how soft the snow, how drowsy the winds, how sweet the smell of locust blossoms from the south. Oh, Ithaqua, on to Hasta. On to Hasta? Mm. Yeah. So he's got to say it twice more yet. Oh, no, we had three there. We had Hasta, Hasta, Adoramus Tay, and then. Yeah. Oh, dear. This ties in, I guess, with what he was saying, the Mask of Cthulhu, about Hasta being an air god or an air elemental. And obviously, as well, Durlith had this real thing about Hasta, as we mentioned back in our Hasta episodes, where he wanted to call it the Hasta mythos instead of the Cthulhu mythos Mm, and saw mm. Hasta as being the most important element there. So, of course, it makes sense in this that Ithaqua is subservient to Hasta. I can hear that star-shaped peg being hammered into that round hole just as we speak. (laughs) And in Durleth's stories, those who know of Ithaqua also liken him to the gods Quetzalcoatl, Thor, and Enlil. So there's references to or parallels that people draw between Ithaqua and sort of mythological beings from, from all over the planet, really. Yeah, well, particularly gods of the air and gods of the wind, as all three of those are. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Or gods of storms. Mm. And that sort of leads us back to this incorporation of the Wendigo legends into the mythology of Athaqua and how any of that works or doesn't work. Because of the similarity to Elgin and Blackwood's eponymous tale, Athaqua had become synonymous with the Wendigo in fiction and gaming for many years. While Durlith drew heavily upon Blackwood's story, name-checking it in the snow thing, the entity Blackwood described bore little, if any, resemblance to the actual Wendigo of legend. Hmm. In fact, there are many variants of the Wendigo legend spread largely across Algonquin-speaking peoples of the northern USA and Canada. 
while even the name differs from people to people, there's, there's a whole long list of different names. Oh, gosh, yes. There do seem to be some similarities between them. And primarily the Wendigo is driven by hunger. While some are described as being spirits, they largely seem to be people who have been changed, either through the influence of a spirit or through their own actions. Their insatiable hunger might lead them to consume people. There ain't no party like a Donner party. The Wendigo of legend is really a human figure. In a lot of legends, it basically is just a person, someone who looks like a person you might not realise they're a Wendigo. They are human-sized. They're not these entities that walk on the wind. Some stories, however, do depict them as growing monstrously in size whenever they feed. But this is because no matter how much they eat, they're never sated. And this is represented by their bodies growing too big to be sated by what they've eaten. The Wendigo seems to be a cautionary tale about selfishness. By giving in to their hungers, those affected become a danger to the ties that bind together a community. They can often be defeated or cured by melting the ball of ice that has grown around their hearts. Until recently, psychologists in North America sometimes diagnosed what was known as Wendigo psychosis, believing that particularly indigenous people could become obsessed with consuming human flesh in times of famine or hardship. This has been roundly debunked since. In some of the write-ups I've read of it, that did seem to be a controversial title, even uh, going back a long, yeah. long way. Mm. Yeah. But it appeared apparently, I think, in... I don't know if it appeared in the DSM, but it certainly appeared in psychological and psychiatric texts in the US until shockingly recently. Blackwood bypassed all these elements and used the name for a monster that more represents the hostile elements of the frozen wilderness. It's these elements that Durleth drew upon, perpetuating the differences from actual Wendigo legends. Good old Durleth. Now, obviously, this use of the Wendigo in both the Cthulhu mythos and also in horror in general. For example, Stephen King's Pet Cemetery also uses the Wendigo or rather uses Wendigo spirits. And this has become somewhat controversial in recent years. I don't know about you two, but I'm always very, perhaps overcautious, but certainly cautious about using the beliefs of cultures that are still around within what I write. I mean, for example... When I posted on Twitter a little while back asking for people who might have some insight into this to give me pointers as to how we could address this accurately and sensitively in the episode, one of our listeners contacted me there and said, why are you worried about this? Lovecraft himself, you know, for example, incorporated deities like Dagon and Odin's in his stories. What's different about this one? And I'd say the difference is that... No one these days really still believes in Dagon or Nodens, but there are plenty of people out there for whom Wendigo spirits or Wendigos are still parts of their belief system. I don't feel like where it's a, a living culture, I feel uncomfortable about transforming and incorporating those beliefs that someone still cleaves to. Yeah, I don't think we want to cause events to anyone. Definitely not. And I think in the fiction and I think also in the Call of Cthulhu scenarios, and it makes this point in the Malleus Monstrorum as well, that I think there's a difference to be drawn between the beliefs held by fictional characters. So like in Blackwood's story, one of the characters sort of talks about the, the Wendigo myth, but Blackwood himself doesn't say this is the Wendigo. Somebody refers to to the Wendigo myths, and there's this thing out there, whether they're really related or not. I mean, it kind of kind of implies they are, but certainly with with Durleth, you know, he's he's sort of harking back to that story. And people, I guess, if people have heard in the fiction, if those characters have heard of the Wendigo, they're going to say, "Oh, you know, this monster is that the Wendigo?" Some of those fictional people are going to believe that. Well, I think the whole thing is also complicated by the fact that there has been a long, fairly often ugly history of 
Western horror writers incorporating the beliefs of other cultures into their stories and handling them very badly, presenting what are sometimes sacred beliefs of other people as as very badly researched plot devices and ways of stoking sometimes fear of that culture. I'm thinking primarily of depictions of things like voodoo and Santeria in a lot of horror fiction. Personally, I'm very glad that Chaosium particularly, but also other horror writers, are are thinking much more about this kind of stuff now and and picking these elements back out. Mm. I had a fascinating conversation on Discord a couple of months back with one of our listeners. She's American, but her family is Arab. And we were talking about gin, which is something that, for all their depictions in popular culture, I don't really know that much about. She was telling me that when she encounters horror stories or films that involve gin, she gets uncomfortable, not because of any sense of cultural appropriation but because in gin legends talking about them depicting them gives them strength and that these are these potentially sort of threatening spirits from outside and that by having people who don't really know anything about them coming in and depicting them that you're potentially giving them life now obviously this isn't a belief i share at all but at the same time i don't necessarily feel any need to do that if that makes any sense i mean if that's going to make people uncomfortable then i don't see any harm in leaving that stuff alone i've said before previously i quite like drawing upon folklore myths and legends as inspiration for stories and if there's none of that kind of sensitive reaction like you described with the gin, that mentioning it by name or anything along those lines would cause offence, then generally I'll go ahead and use it and reference the name. But if there is such a kind of sensitive issue around it, then I think what we've discussed before about making our own monsters and drawing upon others for inspiration draw upon elements of them by all means but then don't mention the name give it something completely different give it a different origin story describe it in more mythos like tones and very much keep it as a kernel of like a seed of inspiration but make it very much its own thing so that you're drawing a very clear distinction between here's the real world thing that people hold potentially near and dear to themselves or they're in fear of and make it something that is completely gameable material you don't have to use it wholesale. Make the necessary changes to put a distance between the two if you need to. That's why I quite like what they've done with the kind of renaming of what were traditionally seen as Wendigo in older scenarios or older gaming material into something that has a bit of a different name. Well, do you want to talk about that now, Matt? Particularly in with the reprints of things like what was originally Alone Against the Wendigo and is now Alone Against the Frost, the creatures, in inverted commas, that were depicted as Wendigo creatures are now termed as Windwalkers because they're very much, they are those who have been touched by the Windwalker, Ithaqua. So these are um, the people that we've described previously of they've had cannibalistic tendencies, they they grow more monstrous over time, they favour the colder climates, they share some of the same kind of banes that Ithaqua does. The name change alone actually makes it more of a direct connection with Ithaqua as it draws upon one of his mm. kind of subtitles or other known aliases. Mm. God, I can remember playing Alone Against the Wendigo at the solo camp well adventure and oh my god i just died every time <laughs> i got very far i remember going up the, the stream in a canoe i think on my own i don't know that was not a good move and you were never seen again <laughs> no i wasn't yeah oh god i think it's worth pointing out that that was actually the first solo adventure published for call of cthulhu it was published what in 1985 originally and this new version that has been updated for seventh edition and retitled alone against the frost came out in 2018 i think we should also take a look at born on the winds by brian lumley do we have to this is a story from 1975 uh, nominated for a world fantasy award i think mm. which builds quite a lot on derleth's stories and i think you know has, has been quite an influence on the the gaming view of Ithaqua as well I think yeah it certainly has I mean Lumley is probably the person who's written the most about Ithaqua I mean more than Durdith because he not only wrote that story but he also wrote a novel Spawn of the Winds which was part of his Titus Crow cycle 
which <laughs> added all sorts of other elements in there, which I think, like you say, do turn up in gaming every now and then. So the idea that Ithaqua doesn't just snatch people up into the atmosphere and drop them or take them all around the world, but can actually take them off to an alien world, the world Borea. He even introduced uh, the half-human daughter of Ithaqua, called Amandra, who, unlike, say, Wilbur Waitley and his relationship with Yorg-Sothoth, has a bit less time for her father and is uh, actively opposing him. In the story Born on the Wind, you have uh, the son, Kirby, who is a child of Ithaqua. Oh, yes. Yeah. Ithaqua, towards the end, he, he kind of gets a bit cross and stomps the, the mother. And Kirby, like, flies up in a rage and, and attacks his father. Yeah, so the whole idea of, like, children of Ithaqua and lots of other things sort of come in there. I kind of like the way that you can go from the Wendigo by Blackwood, which, you know, isn't an Ithaqua story, but retrospectively kind of becomes that, if you like. Then you've got, like, what Derleth did with it and then what you've got. And, and, and each one, you know, takes it in quite a markedly, I don't know, there's a definite continuity, but also quite different angles on it and different, yeah. different uh, aspects that are added. Quite markedly with this one, I think. Yeah, I mean, Lumley's approach is far more pulpy, mm. that he's writing these things, as he did with most of the Titus Crow stuff, particularly, writing them less as horror stories and more as pulp adventures. Reading his dialogue, it's like reading, it's like listening to uh, like an old black and white sort of melodramatic <laughs> film. It's just some of the dialogue the characters have. I think if you read it in that manner, it's like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense now. But to a modern <laughs> reader, it just seems a bit... A bit clumsy, perhaps. Now, thinking of Lumley's daughter of Ithaqua, going back to Malus Monstorum, there's a nice little entry in there that discusses what the being's motivation is, because as as we've said, there isn't really that much that's been written about him in Durleth's stories anyway. And even then, it more presents kind of a description of the wake of its presence and that showcasing the things that it does, but it doesn't really go into any detail as to what its motivations are, and a lot of that's been extrapolated since. And one of the theories or options that's presented in the text in, in Malleus references a tome called Wild Forests, author unknown, published in limited numbers in 1883, it says that maybe Ithaqua's one of its goals or desires is to create children, such as this daughter, uh, figure, but it mentions that perhaps it's not so much that it gives birth, but that it transforms its followers, and that's another angle on what these Windwalker creatures, formerly described as Wendigo, what they might be. Mm. It adds another kind of level onto that that maybe this is maybe taking a little bit of inspiration from Lumley and putting it into this into this growing picture that they're building of Ithaqua. And that idea of change also comes about with the tokens or medallions of Ithaqua that are mentioned in Malleus Monstrorum as well. And we see these in the in the stories, in the fiction, that you know that somebody's sort of dropped from the sky and you know they pry apart their frozen fingers and there's this little gold token of some sort. I, I picture that. And I'm not sure if this is explicit in the stories or if I've just misremembered, but I picture that Ithaqua has picked these people up, gone across the globe with them and, and landed on some you know, other planet or like some other part of the world. And, and the person has picked something up and then, you know, they've flown, hmm. you know, off and, th and then the person been dropped with it and they're still clutching it in their hand. And, and now this is somehow imbued with a, a part of the spirit of the, the Windwalker. And, and in the, in the Malice Monstrum, it, it sort of says how these things can enhance your strength or con or dex perhaps and send visions but the the token itself remains forever icy cold and you know an investigator who gets one of these has got to make an extreme power roll to resist a, a bond that that slowly saps their sanity and at some point will you know if they succumb to it will will draw them to north to meet their well to meet Ithaka, i guess i remember seeing that in person in a particular campaign which will remain nameless where paul grasped this thing and was going around yelling my medallion <laughs> and very much was having to prize it from his cold dead fingers but in the stories yeah it's not just the gold medallions but there are all sorts of just random items that people mm. seem to come back with if i remember correctly it's not the gold medallions that remain cold though those have strange imprints on them there was that 
stone, that piece of stone that just always remained too cold. And that just strikes me as being the kind of thing that you could have fun with in a pulp game if a mad scientist got hold of that, just this thing that, because of its association with Azakwa, just does not function by the laws of thermodynamics that govern the rest of the universe. Yeah. What you could do with such a thing. Fueling rocket ships with cold energy. Yeah. I was just thinking the ultimate aircon unit. Yeah, you were gonna just going to put it in a big glass of water, Matt, like an everlasting ice cube. <laughs> <laughs> I'll think of the cocktails I could make with that. <laughs> but yeah, just by using it as a heat exchanger, you could use it effectively to power something indefinitely and get infinite energy out of this thing. Mm. If these people come back with all these wonderful items... Maybe this is why you get these cultists that sacrifice people, that it's not because they want to worship Ithakwa or that they even see him as a god. It's it's almost like fishing, that you send this person up to Ithakwa, Ithakwa takes them around, and then you recover the body afterwards and see what good loot they've come back with. You know, you're retrieving your lure, and instead of a fish, you've got magic items. Hmm. And also when you mentioned worshipping Ithaka, do we see anybody actually worshipping them? We see them sort of putting out offerings to appease Ithaka. Even his children seem to turn against him. I mean, I'm not really sure we see many accounts of him actually being worshipped, do we or not? One of the main ones is the Nofke. Right, okay, we haven't even mentioned them, yeah. It's more that they're in inhuman worshippers. So what are the Nofke, Matt? Ah, oh, they're lovely, cuddly creatures. They'd make a great plush. <laughs> they would. Think a huge polar bear with six arms and a horn. But those do actually appear in Lovecraft, and even though, I mean, Lovecraft only mentioned them in passing, but those are much more associated, at least within the original conception, with Ran Tegoth from the horror in the museum. Mm. Again, this is something that seems to have changed and evolved over time to incorporate the more Dolithian stuff but that's sort of retrofitting a Thakwa onto these things. Surprisingly when well, at least when I went to have a look through my gaming collection to find instances where Ithakwa have been mentioned. The biggest one because we've, we've played it, I think all of us played it at least in one one time or another. Mm. The big one is Walker in the Wastes, uh, written by John H. Crow III, published by Pagan Publishing back in 1994, and is one of the more expensive of the older collection of licensee products to get these days. It goes for quite a price online, along with the player aid pack that came with it, a bit similar to what they did with Realm of Shadows. So that's the big one. That's a, that's a full-blown campaign that revolves around the great old one, and you get plenty of other creatures associated within that pop up through the campaign as well as well as the of quite a widespread cult it's globe trotting so yeah it's, it's I, I had a lot of fun playing that one i mean it's an interesting campaign there's a lot of cool stuff in it the only problem i had with it was that i guess because of the focus of it the fact that it was all set in frozen locations that it felt a bit samey sometimes. It, it did feel like we're going to our next frozen location to do pretty much the same thing as we did at the last one. And it does have quite a large tonal shift as well between the kind of the end of the first chapter and then the the ongoing format after that, which I think probably can work against it in some instances. Yeah. Although I I managed to get my character from the beginning right the way through to the end. Yay! <laughs> and have the whole party turn against me. Yay! And as you were saying, Matt. Ithaka doesn't crop up that often you know we're not going to list them because it's a bit of a spoiler but yeah. we've sort of brought to mind like three or four other scenarios where Ithaka appears but not overused I was surprised at how much he was used because between Alone Against the Frost the fact that there's a whole campaign devoted to him and the four or five other scenarios for what is fundamentally a fairly minor figure in the Cthulhu mythos mm. I, I think he's actually got a surprising amount of use compared to oh, okay. a lot of equivalent entities. But he's also used it a couple of slightly different ways, again, without naming which ones they are. There's the medallion that pops up in one particular campaign, but the entity itself doesn't. It's just purely like an almost hmm. like a name check. It's saying, oh, this, this thing came from blah, but it doesn't really give you an opportunity to either call the great old one or, or meet him, which many would probably be thankful for. Then you've got a couple of others, which admittedly the one the, the thing that drew me to these to think 
is he going to feature in these is because of their titles thinking of they're set in particular northerly locations or they've got particular descriptors in the title and yep sure enough there they were and again one of them features more directly it's the great old one himself at the end and the other one it's more you f- you find his minions cropping up throughout the story until he finally makes a big appearance on the stage at the end of the game as well and mainly even those are licensee products for two out of those three so it's they're not main chaosium releases so there's been very little done mm. with him on the on the chaosium front he could do with a bit more love so how might we incorporate him in our games any ideas how you might make use of him i think a poor writer that's stuck in a sweltering summer would gladly call down the great old one to make his home a, a nice frozen wasteland so he can actually survive the next few months well i can see you calling him matt but you know what i was looking at the stories about people becoming impervious to cold and scott yeah. I mean, you're pretty impervious to cold <laughs> and also don't you like raw steak <laughs> I do. Have you embraced Ithaka in your life? I'd like to think that I've got a bit of each Lovecraftian deity within mm. me. I'm fed equal opportunities on that front. I haven't sold out to any particular one yet. Uh, you're holding out for a better deal. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Playing your cards close to your chest, I see. Just remind me never to sit within biting reach of you again. But beyond this, <laughs> have we actually got any ideas for how we might use Ithaqua? I mean, it's kind of like if you go to any cold climate, it's, now I think about it, like in Two-Headed Serpent, spoilers, there is a chapter in Iceland. I don't think that gives mm. too much spoilers. No Ithaqua. No. You know, loads. there was snow, but no Ithaqua. Was there snow? I think there was snow. Well, no, there wasn't snow. It was set in July. Oh, okay. And it's next to a volcano. <laughs> it's it's yeah. more rocks and hot rocks. You can have volcanoes covered in snow. Mm. Yes. The thing I'd focus in on him would be more the degeneration of those that have been turned into windwalkers. So kind of almost going, taking a leaf out of the vein of a classic scenario like Mr. Corbett. You've got your neighbour who you suddenly find is doing strange things. Have someone that maybe you know through associational work or maybe even like friend of a friend or an incident that's occurred that's then impacted someone you know that you've got this fellow that's starting or this man or woman that's starting to degenerate and display odd behaviour and that the most of the scenario would be trying to a work out what he's done or she's done, work out why they're doing it and then slowly piece together that maybe this is the result of them having gone to the north and been exposed to something they shouldn't have done. Potentially even use that as a, as a hook into what Scott suggested throw your bait out maybe this is a bait that's returned that survived and that it then goes into opening up a whole wider problem that you've got to deal with also set it somewhere where it immediately wouldn't become obvious that it's Ithaqua because a lot of the stories do end up being set way north Mm. I'd put one of these windwalkers having suddenly run down to Florida to get where it's really hot and maybe Mm. even have it the headline that hooks the investigators in Florida man eats neighbour or something (laughs) along those lines would that even make a headline nowadays? Well, one of the many Florida man stories. <laughs> As an aside, do you know why there are so many Florida man stories like that? And the answer isn't that Florida is just weirder than everywhere else. No, it's legalities around revealing the stories to the press. Exactly, yeah. I'm still not entirely convinced that Florida isn't a hotbed of weirdness, but it does get overreported on that front. <laughs> I suppose you could always bring in a thematic aspect as well uh, that florida makes quite an appropriate place because of the amount of times they get hit by hurricanes so plenty of wind if you want if uh, if they wants to take a southerly vacation that sounds like a great place to go mm. you could even have a hook in there of just this completely weird freak weather outbreak with uh, a hailstorm or something in florida yeah i mean I've, I've used it before actually in a different scenario set down in florida about Casadega, the uh, spiritualist commune down there, that mm. when snow has hit Florida, and it does hit there, admittedly quite a long time between them, it becomes a massive deal. Like one of the times, I think it was in the 40s, they just had a headline that filled the whole front page of a paper that just said, snow! With a big exclamation <laughs> mark. So yeah, it's a big deal, but it does happen down there. Mm. I was thinking in terms of the scenario hooks, that it might be interesting to do something in the modern day. I don't know exactly how I'd put this together, but having a benign cult, or at least a well-intentioned cult of Ithaqua, that maybe they are conducting human sacrifices and doing horrible things, but fundamentally what they're doing is trying to call upon his power to combat climate change. Mm. 
that as the planet is heating up, that by making a Tharkweb manifest more and more in our world, this is a way of bringing temperatures back down, of introducing some more cloud cover, of trying to offset what is an existential threat with what may be a slightly lesser existential threat. You're making him sound like a good guy now. You realise that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm starting to get behind it now. (laughs) I've seen the light. I'm just imagining this cult of meteorologists and climate scientists going out here, you know, kidnapping climate skeptics and sacrificing them to a thug. It <laughs> <laughs> almost reminds me of that film with uh, Ron Perlman in it. Is it called The Last Winter? Oh, yes. Which, again, almost has a very similar type. Ithaqua-ish kind of figure, but more, more like a big old moose that carries him away on the wind at the end. Well, that was Larry Fessenden, who'd also done a film a few years earlier called Wendigo. He, in his films, builds upon a lot of these misconceptions about Wendigos and I think perpetuates a lot of the problems. But on the other hand, I, both of those, I think, are pretty good horror films, so... Mm. I'm conflicted. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to this episode. And any other episodes you may have listened to, but mostly this one because, well, obviously this is the one you're listening to. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us on Patreon. And we have a number of new people whose names have come to us on the wind. And we would like to thank by name. Yep, beginning with a thanks going out to Brandon Wallace. And also thanks to Anita S. Moore. And thank you very much to Stuart McNair. And thanks to Darren Murray. And thanks very much to Blue Sky. And thank you very much to Bryant Roberts. And thank you to Jeremy Gilbert. And thank you very much to Olaf Roenblom. So hopefully I've pronounced your name right then. And thank you very much to Dee Walker. And thank you to Jake London. And thank you very much to Thomas Elliott. And thank you to Adam Preset. And thank you to Nick Hollinsworth. And thank you very much to Brolin Graham. <laughs> and thank you very much to the wonderfully named Republic of Folk. And also thanks to Pazzo, Beyond Madness. And thanks again to Aaron Swanson. And thank you to Diamantis Asteris. And thanks to Matthew Denny. And thank you very much to Joe Contour. Yes, this is as good a time to mention this as any. If we have completely bucket up any of your names then please do get in contact and we will read them again according to your specification and with that in mind thank you very much to bartosz bukols and thanks to ed flager and thank you very much to berry wolf and thank you very much to kevin konezko and thanks to matthew house and also thank you very much to mark larkin well, are you feeling any cooler now after that episode, Matt? No, and there's a pool of sweat pretty much forming a halo around the bottom of my chair. Well, you're safe from Ithaqua, <laughs> that's all I can say. Your your room is, uh, you know, it's like you've got a circle of protection around you. I carry it with me wherever I go, or I form it, rather, wherever I go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Ithaqua is exactly unique in being repelled by pools of sweat. <laughs> I don't know, Aboth might find it attractive, you never know. Oh no, he finds everything to do with us disgusting. (laughs) Well, I think that's all the icy goodness that we've got for you this show. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com And now I'm off to go and sit in the freezer.